0: Let me invite you to turn in God's Word to John chapter 14, and if you're using one of the Bibles there in the seats in front of you, we have a couple of different editions, so it's going to be either page 847 or page 901. And we're in John chapter 14, and as you see, the title of the sermon is Dwelling with the Triune God in Loving Obedience. And this is actually sermon number five now in our series as we're moving through Jesus's Farewell Mission Discourse in John chapters 13 through 16. And the series entitled Trinity, Mission, and Me, How the Family of the Triune God Overflows with his love, light, and life-giving work in a world that hates him. And so this is message number five of nine. So this uh, brings us through the halfway point in what we're going through. And in the text I'm going to read and that we're going to look at this morning, verses 15 to 31, uh, we saw last week in the first part of chapter 14 uh, that Jesus has been comforting his troubled disciples and he's been doing so by calling them to trust and to keep trusting him, only him. And now he continues his words of comfort in verse 15, calling them to love and obey him, flowing from that trust. So let's hear the eternal and inerrant word of God. I'm going to read from verse 15 through the end of the chapter. He says, beginning in verse 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And he who loves me will be loved by my father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Verse 25, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, and let us go from here. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me as we seek his help? Our triune God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light for our paths. And your commandment is eternal life. And so we pray that you would teach, lead, and transform us now by your word. Grant us greater understanding, greater faith, and greater obedience to you in the hope of your love for us in Jesus and life in him. Please help me to proclaim your word faithfully for your glory. We pray all of this because of Jesus. Amen amen. Well, here's a question for you as we get started today. In a little while, not too long from now, when our time together concludes, let me just ask you, and you don't need to answer this out loud, but just ask you, what's next for you? When we're done with our time here this morning, what is next for you? Where are you planning to go from here? Probably lunch somewhere, like most of us, but then what's after that? What are the next steps that you're going to take as the day moves along? And thinking about that question, let me bend it in a little bit more of a spiritual direction and ask it this way. What are the next steps of faith and obedience that God would have you to take today? Wherever you may be in your life right now, in your specific situation, in your specific circumstances, what are the next steps of faith and obedience that God would have you to take today? This is a question, of course, that applies to every single one of us. Men and women, boys and girls, young and old, every single one of us. And I think it's the question that John chapter 14 verses 15 to 31, our text today, really presses home for us. What are the next steps of obedience and faith that God would have us to take? I want to encourage you to just kind of let that question linger in your mind as we move through these things today. What are the next steps God has for you in faith and obedience? Well in the text that we're going to be looking at, Jesus is preparing and he's mobilizing his fearful disciples for their next steps of faith and obedience. And the hour of his suffering on the cross has come. And Jesus has told his men that he's leaving them to return to the Father. And he's told them that he's going somewhere that they cannot now come. And they are crushed. They are experiencing severe separation anxiety. And they know that there's growing hatred and hostility against Jesus and there is great danger everywhere. And so in the same way that stomach acid can kind of bubble up in our bodies and bring painful heartburn... Trouble and anxiety has bubbled up in their hearts and it's burning them, as it were, with painful fear. They're terrified. But Jesus is the one who has led them into this trouble, ultimately to do them and us good. Now, earlier in verses 1 to 14, Jesus has exhorted them, as I mentioned earlier, to trust and to keep trusting only Him. He alone who is the way and the truth and the life. He alone who is the one who restores them to the Father and will bring them to the Father's house. And they're to keep trusting only Jesus because only Jesus rules and provides for the mission that he is sending them on in this world. So that's what he's been addressing with them in verses 1 to 14. In fact, in verse 12 of chapter 14, we hear these words. He says to them, "...Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do." And he's talking there about greater works of spirit-empowered, life-giving proclamation of the gospel, following his resurrection and ascension to heaven and the coming of the Holy Spirit. And he says, greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Well, now in verse 15 and following, Jesus is expanding his loving exhortation. He's building on what he's already said. And really, what he's doing is clarifying what trusting him should look like and how it is that his disciples will do these greater works. That's what he's addressing in verses 15 to 31. What it means to trust him and how they're going to do these works. And here's the essence of it. Here's the heart of Jesus' call in verses 15 to 31. And it's this Christian, fear not and fulfill your mission in the world. Christian, fear not and fulfill your mission in the world. That's the message. That's the call of Jesus in verses 15 to 31. Now, Jesus here, the loving good shepherd that he is, develops this exhortation in three parts. Three parts that are intended to comfort and to strengthen His people in fulfilling our mission. And these parts can be summarized in three words. And this will form our outline for today. Here they are. Three words. Demonstrate, depend, and determine. Demonstrate, depend, and determine. I'm going to fill in some details with each of those words. But there's the essence of what we see in verses 15 to 31 in this call for Christians to fear not and to fulfill our mission. Demonstrate, Uh, what's the second one? Depend and to determine. I get a little tongue-tied there. Demonstrate, depend, and determine. So let's look at the first one, demonstrate. And the truth here is this. Demonstrate your faith with loving obedience to the triune God. Demonstrate your faith with loving obedience to the triune God. And this is the point of what Jesus says very straightforwardly in verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now again, in verses 1 to 14, he's called his disciples to believe on him, to trust and to keep trusting only him. And now he expands that call To make clear that to genuinely believe on Jesus means to love and obey Him. And so this is so important. And notice that loving obedience to Jesus and ultimately to the triune God, that loving obedience flows from faith. We obey God not to try to earn his favor, but because we trust his favor and his love in the salvation that he's given to us in Jesus. And so we're to lovingly obey him, not out of slavish, fearful duty, but out of childlike trust, love, and delight in him who is our God. Loving obedience flows from faith. And notice also that Jesus measures love for Him by obedience to Him. You see, love for God is not about warm fuzzies and sentimentality. That's not true love for God. It's measured by obedience. Love for God is not only about emotion and affection, though it certainly ought to involve that, loving God with our heart and our soul and our mind and strength. It involves emotion and affection, but it is most displayed, it is most demonstrated by obedience. And verse 15 could not be clearer. But just so there's no confusion at all, Jesus is going to actually reinforce that statement and he makes the point emphatic. And so if you look down at verse 21, he says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And then again in verse 23, he says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And then he says it again negatively in verse 24, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And then notice at the end of verse 24, Jesus stresses the authority of his commandments, his word, when he says, and the word that you hear is not mine, but it's the father's who sent me. And so he's reinforcing and stressing this truth that love for God is measured by obedience to God, and all of that flows out of faith in God. And then down in verse 26, he says that it is the Holy Spirit, the coming Holy Spirit, who will teach and who will bring to remembrance all that Jesus has said. And so these words, these commandments come ultimately from the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so the first part of Jesus' exhortation is this call to demonstrate our faith by loving obedience to the commandments of the triune God. And this is the first part of fearing not and fulfilling our mission is remembering again and again and again that we are people under gracious, loving authority and we're called to trust and love and obey our God. Now, when Jesus says this, he's really echoing truths that we find in the Old Testament as well. For instance, in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 and 13, we hear these words, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. So in a sense, Jesus isn't saying anything new. He's building on things God had said in the Old Testament. And then in time ahead of the time where Jesus is speaking to his disciples here in the book of 1 John, written by the same human author of the Gospel of John, listen to what we find in 1 John chapter 5 verses 1 to 3. When we've come to know the love of God through faith in Christ and we know all the riches of the blessings we've been given in Christ and we respond to that faith by eagerly, lovingly obeying God, His commands aren't burdensome. What makes them a challenge and what makes them burdensome at times in our experience is fighting against our own sinful inclinations. But we come to learn that His commandments are not burdensome. Now imagine that you've just been hired at your dream job. The job where you're going to be doing the work that you have always wanted to do for the company that you've always wanted to work for. This is the dream job of all dream jobs. If that's happened to you, what's one of the first things that you'll probably do, probably even before you start work, Namely, you're going to try to find the policy and procedure manual and learn everything you can about the job that you're expected to do. In other words, you're going to want to learn and you're going to be eager to find out what is expected of you so that you can do what is expected of you so that you can please your employer. And if this is your dream job, doing that is not a burden, is it? It's a delight You're eager to do it because this is, after all, it's the dream job that you've always wanted. Well, obviously, in a far greater way, how much more are we who have come to faith in the triune God to be eager to know his will for us, what he expects of us out of his love and his wisdom and his grace and his truth and his righteousness and his glory, And all the more eager to know it so that we would do his will. So that we would obey his will and submit to him. We've been born of him. We've been given new life and hope and peace in him. And he calls us to demonstrate our faith by loving obedience to what he's commanded. Well, as we hear these words from Jesus, we may ask the question, what specifically has Jesus commanded? What commandments does he have in mind? Well, maybe you remember what he recently said back in chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. He said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. He says, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, this, of course, is a clear and emphatic command For his disciples to be passionately devoted to loving one another in the same way that Jesus loves us. There's a lot of other aspects of Jesus's commandments and the triune God's commandments as we work out the details of that. Jesus had said earlier in his ministry that the summation of the entire law is to love God and to love others. And of course, loving God is what defines and focuses our love for others But even if we just take that, that most immediate commandment that he had spoken of, to love one another, this is what he's calling us to do, to passionately love one another. And of course, in the example that Jesus had just enacted with his disciples in washing their feet, and then even more in his soon dying uh, to save them, he demonstrates what he's talking about. That this love is a godly, humble, sacrificial love that is focused on doing others good spiritually. And this command was specific for his disciples at the, the, at the time that he gave it. For those 11 men, it of course carries on to everyone else who comes to know Christ. And we're to passionately be devoted to loving one another in obedience to Christ. And so the command is specific for us as well. So I just want to think this out a little bit more with a little bit more specificity to how we love one another and are called to love one another. It's really the starting point for our mission to the world as it was for the disciples. And Jesus, of course, said in verse 35 of chapter 13 that it's by this love that the world will know that we belong to him. This love has a witness-bearing, testimony-giving reality to it that it demonstrates the reality of God to the world around us. And so we're to love one another. And if this was specific for these 11 disciples, then I believe by way of application for us, Jesus wants our love to be specified, particularly in the context of a local church where we're devoted to other believers in membership. Yes, we're to love all believers. Yes, we're to love unbelievers and we're to bear witness to them. But there is a specificity of our loving one another in obedience to God that we're to live out among us here. And many of you know that and embrace that and pursue that and how rich and wonderful and encouraging it is to see. But in light of that, I want to just say a few things to those of you who are Christians and especially those of you who have affirmed membership here at River City Grace. How are you doing in passionately loving your brothers and sisters in Christ? Especially those who are fellow members here who have affirmed membership here. How are you doing in passionately loving them? And again, I see all kinds of evidences of of the ways in which love is playing out, and people are caring for one another, praying for one another, being alert and responsive to physical needs of one another, being concerned about spiritual needs and wanting to come alongside and help one another grow. That's the, the heart of our love as we, in a very real way, wash each other's feet but one thing I will say that can concern me, and I know it concerns the other pastor elders as well along this line, is it simply has to do sometimes with a lack of attendance from some who are members to all of our services on a given Sunday. Just gathering as an expression of our love for one another. Now most of you are usually here in this service and then there's usually less who come to equipping hour and then there's usually even less that may come to our evening gatherings whether it's the community groups or our evening service. I just want to encourage you to see those opportunities on the Lord's day when he calls us together as very strategic opportunities to exercise love to one another just by showing up. Now, obviously, loving one another carries on way beyond our gatherings on Sunday, but it's not less than that. And just by showing up, you put yourself in a place to love others and to get to know others and to share with others around God and his word and his purposes for us. And you also are in a place where we can concurrently love you and get to know you and minister to one another. But if you're not here, we can't do that. And the body is a little bit lopsided when every part's not here. And so I want to encourage you to even in a very direct way think about obeying that command to love one another as it relates to gathering. And obviously there's always reasons that can, legitimate reasons that can prohibit us or keep us from gathering. That happens from time to time. But when it's a habitual matter that sometimes might be rooted in just simply, frankly, laziness, or selfishness, or indifference, that's a problem. We're not passionately loving as we should be loving. And so I want to encourage you to think about that. I'm not saying that to shame anyone, but to consider if that's true. Maybe the Lord wants you to take some next steps of obedience and faith by more passionately loving one another, even by just purposing to prioritize and plan gathering when we gather. And so, beloved, part of God's call for us to fulfill our mission involves demonstrating our faith with loving obedience to his commandments, such as his commandment to love one another. But now, that brings us to the second part of Jesus' exhortation, and that is the word depend. Depend. And the truth here is, depend on the indwelling presence of the triune God. Depend on the indwelling presence of the triune God. You'll notice in verses 16 and 17, Jesus begins to speak of another coming helper. And that word in the ESV is the Greek word paraclete. Perhaps you've heard that word. It means one who comes alongside to help. And in that same passage, verses 16 and 17, he also calls him the spirit of truth who will dwell with and in the disciples. And then later, down in verse 26, Jesus calls the helper the Holy Spirit. Now this place in chapter 14 verses 16 and 17 is the first time within the farewell mission discourse that Jesus speaks of his coming, of the coming ministry of the Holy Spirit. But he's also going to say a lot more about the person and work of the Holy Spirit in chapters 15 and 16. But this is the first place where he speaks of the coming Holy Spirit. And in verse 16, you might know that there are some different ways, uh, the words that he uses there to identify the paraclete, there's different ways those words are translated in various translations. And so in the ESV, along with the New American Standard Bible and the New King James Bible, a paraclete is translated as helper. The old King James Version says comforter, and the New International Version says advocate. And you say, well, who's right? And in a legitimate sense, they all are. Because there's no one English word that really gets at the full meaning and significance of what Jesus is talking about. Um, A common translation, by the way, for paraclete is advocate, as I mentioned, in uh, the New International. And actually, in 1 John chapter 2 verse 1, that term is used there specifically of Jesus specifically of Jesus. But all these different English translations for the word paraclete speak to various aspects of his works in believer, of his work in believers. And the point to see is that just like Jesus was when he was physically present with his disciples, The paraclete is a helper. He is a comforter. He is an advocate who intercedes for God's people before God. But no one single English word really captures the fullness of the Holy Spirit's work, as we're going to see both now and in future times when we see reference to the Spirit in chapters 15 and 16. But for now, the point I want to emphasize is this. The significance of Jesus saying in verse 16 that the paraclete is another helper to be with you forever, uh, the significance is massive. Because what Jesus is saying by identifying the paraclete as another helper is he's saying that all that he is, all that Jesus is, he who is the way and the truth and the life All that he was when he was physically present with his disciples, teaching them, comforting them, rebuking them, uh, protecting them, guiding and guarding them, that's the work of the Spirit of God in the lives of his people. He's another helper to be what Jesus was when he was physically present with his people, what he is now that he is absent And so the spirit of truth, he says, will be dwelling not only with them, but in them forever. Forever. And so Jesus is speaking of the inauguration of the new covenant and the coming of the Holy Spirit. Even as we heard reference to that in the passage, it was read earlier in Ezekiel chapter 11. But if you look a little further down in verses 21 to 24, Jesus gives a little further explanation to the ministry of the Spirit of Truth, of the paraclete. And what he says there, including his response to a question from Judas, not Iscariot, not the betrayer, what he says is, it is the indwelling Holy Spirit who will manifest the presence and the love of both the Father and the Son to his disciples. That's kind of a rough summation of what he's saying in verses 21 to 24. The Holy Spirit will manifest the presence and the love of both the Father and the Son to his disciples. And then he goes on to say in verses 25 and 26 that the Holy Spirit will both teach and remind the disciples of all that Jesus has said. And so it's the ministry of the Spirit of God to carry on and advance the mission that the Father gave to Jesus... And that he is now nearing completion. And so I refer to this point as the indwelling presence of the, the triune God. Depending on the indwelling presence of the triune God. Because it is God the Father and God the Son through God the Spirit dwelling in his people to advance God's mission. Now again, the point of Jesus saying all of this to his disciples and ultimately to us is so that they and we will depend on God's indwelling presence and know that we are not alone in the mission that God has called us to in this world. He dwells within us. And this is exactly what Jesus is getting at When he says in verses 18 to 20, he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. He says, because I live, you also will live. And in that day, you will know that I am in the Father and you in me and I in you. You see what Jesus is doing. He's assuring his troubled disciples that in his leaving, they're not being abandoned as orphans. To the contrary, following his resurrection, his ascension to heaven, and the giving of the Holy Spirit, they are going to come to know the fullness of God's indwelling presence in a way that is even greater than Jesus being physically with them. And so the indwelling presence of the Father and the Son through the Spirit would be their ongoing security and confidence and power in the fulfillment of their mission. That's what Jesus is saying to them. Depend on the indwelling presence of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now we know that for those disciples, those 11 men gathered with Jesus at that time, the coming of the Holy Spirit was yet future. It had not yet happened. And that's why Jesus is speaking in those futuristic terms. But we also know, according to Acts 2, that the fulfillment of what Jesus promised in the coming of the Holy Spirit occurred on the day of Pentecost following Jesus' return to the Father. And so for every believer since that time, the Holy Spirit comes to permanently and fully indwell us at the time of our conversion. It's exactly what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, and he says, "...in Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory." And so for every believer, everyone who comes to faith in Christ by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, he regenerates us, he causes us to be born again, enables us to believe and come to faith in Christ. He then comes to take up permanent residence within us immediately and fully. And he dwells in us. And the Father and the Son through the Spirit dwell in us. This is mutual indwelling. This is union with God in Christ through the Spirit. Now, there's another point to highlight in John chapter 14. And and I would just ask, please stay with me. (laughs) I know this is kind of thick, uh, but there's a lot here, as you can see. There's a lot that Jesus addresses. So stay with me. It's a little bit thick, but it's very, very critical. But a very important point to see in John chapter 14. And here it is the means by which disciples come into a deeper, fuller experience of the indwelling presence and love of God is through loving obedience to God's commandments. Let me say that again. The means by which disciples come into a deeper and fuller experience of the indwelling presence and love of God is through loving obedience to God's commandments. That's why we see woven together there in verses 21 and 24 in this language of mutual indwelling that Jesus is speaking of. He's reiterating again the fact that our love for him is demonstrated in our obedience to him. Now our obedience doesn't bring about, um, it doesn't bring about more filling in a sense as it were. It brings us into a deeper, fuller experience of the reality of his presence within us. If we indeed belong to him. And so what Jesus is teaching and promising here is that the more that we by faith lovingly obey the Father and the Son and His commandments through the Spirit, the more we do that, the more the Father and the Son through the Spirit manifest their indwelling presence and love to us. The more we begin to realize the goodness of God, the love of God, the reality of God, the truthfulness of God, the goodness of His commandments, we come to experience His fullness ever more fully. God delights to dwell in those who delight in him and who dwell in him. Now one way this might be illustrated, certainly not a perfect illustration, but for those of you who are children still living in the home with your parents, think about this. When you disobey your parents in whatever it may be, does it usually go good for you? Does it bring a lot of closeness and endearment in your relationship to your parents, a lot of joy, a lot of peace, a lot of harmony? The answer is no, it never does. It never goes well with you. But on the other hand, if you lovingly obey your parents and you gladly submit to their authority, generally speaking, does it go well? the answer is uh, probably generally yes and I know not always we're not all perfect and there can be a lot of a lot of problems but the point is is that when we lovingly submit to the authority over us usually it goes well for us and it deepens and strengthens the relationship with that authority like a child with a parent and in a far greater way I think that's kind of the experience that Jesus is talking about As we obey him through faith and in love, we come to experience ever more fully the the wonder and the power and the riches of his indwelling presence in our lives. And I think one thing practically this means is this is why we should pray. This is why we should pray. Remember what Jesus said in verses 13 and 14. That we're to ask the Father of things in His name according to who He is and according to all of His resources and aligned with His purposes and with His agenda. We're to pray and He's going to say more about prayer throughout this mission discourse. But we're to pray for God's help, for His strength, for His power to obey Him so that we can obey Him so that He'll be glorified and that we'll come to to be all the more uh, knowing of His indwelling presence in us. And so pray, and so pray. This is what it means to depend on his indwelling presence. And so, beloved, fear not and fulfill your mission in this world. Demonstrate your faith with loving obedience to the triune God and depend on the indwelling presence of the triune God. And this then brings us to the third part of Jesus' exhortation. The word determine. The word determine. And here's the truth. Determine to walk the road of suffering in the peace of the triune God. Determine to walk the road of suffering in the peace of the triune God hear what Jesus says, verses 27 to 29. He says, "'Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, "'not as the world gives do I give to you. "'Let not your hearts be troubled, "'neither let them be afraid. "'You heard me say to you, "'I am going away and I will come to you. "'If you loved me, you would have rejoiced "'because I am going to the Father, "'for the Father is greater than I. "'And now I have told you before it takes place.'" So that when it does take place, you may believe. It's interesting, isn't it? How Jesus circles back to this call to believe. That's kind of the foundation of everything. And as a wise, all-knowing, all-good shepherd, he's wanting to nurture and strengthen the faith of his disciples with what he's saying. And he's ultimately calling them to determine to walk on the road of suffering In the peace of the triune God. You see, Jesus knows how thoroughly troubled and anxious and fearful his disciples are, just as he knows the full depth of every fear and anxiety that you face in your life, either now or that you will face in the future. They are scared, and we often get scared, don't we? obedience to Christ in a fallen world that hates him is scary. It's scary to tell other people about Jesus and to call other people to repent from their sins and to trust in Jesus. A million other expressions of obedience are scary in a fallen world and Jesus knows that for his disciples. He knows that their faith, though real, is very weak and very shaking And he also knows that they are more overcome with sorrow about his leaving than they are with joy about what will follow from his going. He knows that. And so he repeats and he strengthens what he said at the very beginning of chapter 14 about not being troubled. And he promises them peace. He promises them peace. And he makes clear, this is not like peace in the world. What is peace in the world? Well, peace in the world's view, in the world's idea, is based on favorable and pleasant circumstances. It's based on situations where there's an absence of conflict and trouble. That's the world's peace. And there's countless examples of how that is expressed. It's an absence of conflict and trouble. It's favorable, pleasant circumstances. But the peace that Jesus promises is otherworldly. It's supernatural. It's his peace. It comes only from the triune God. And even by his coming death for them, Jesus will once and for all through his death secure their peace with God the Father. Their sins will be forgiven, reconciliation accomplished, no more war with God. That's what Jesus accomplishes through his blood for all who would trust him. Complete salvation and redemption with the Father. And that's an objective peace. We possess that peace for everyone who's a believer. But it's in that objective peace that Jesus here is promising subjective peace. Amid the troubles that we can face in a God hating world. And this peace that he speaks of then is an inner calm and a rest, even when the storm is raging outside. You remember the incident maybe in Mark chapter 4, where the disciples and Jesus are in a boat and there is a massive storm going on. It's nighttime, it's scary, it's terrifying. And what's Jesus doing? He's asleep in the boat. He's giving evidence to this rest, to this peace. Now, it doesn't mean that Jesus, as a man, didn't struggle with trouble and anxiety in his soul. Even in John's gospel, we learn in chapter 12, we learn in chapter 13, and we see it even as he approaches the cross. He's troubled. That's why he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane and pours out his soul to God in prayer because he's seeking the Lord, because he's feeling troubled. But through that, he comes to a sense of peace, and a sense of inner calm and tranquility, even in the midst of very hard, painful, grievous circumstances. This is why Paul would say in Philippians chapter 4, this peace is a peace that passes all understanding. It does not make sense from a human perspective. But it's interesting in John 14... Again, everything Jesus knows about his disciples, the weakness of their faith, their their sort of self-absorbed sorrow about his leaving, they're not seeing the big picture, they're not thinking about the bigger plan of what God is doing. Even with all of that, he doesn't shame them. He doesn't berate them. He doesn't condemn them or mock them. But what does he do? He loves them and he counsels them and he comforts them with promises of peace as they keep trusting, as they keep demonstrating their faith with loving obedience to God's command, as they depend on his indwelling presence, he promises them otherworldly peace. By the way, just as a quick footnote, when he speaks there of the Father being greater than him, you might think, well, wait a second, I thought, I thought they were equal. I thought Jesus had said earlier that he and the Father were one, and well, you're exactly right. Right. He's not speaking of the Father being greater in essence because he and the Father are one along with the Holy Spirit, but he's speaking of his own eternal sonship in relationship to the Father and his willing submission to the Father. It's in that sense he speaks of him as being greater. Well, it's interesting then as we come to the end of the passage Jesus himself prepares to take the next step of obedience on his road of suffering. And so he says in verse 30, I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. And yes, Jesus is there speaking of Satan, the devil. He's referred to him this way as the ruler of the world back in chapter 12. He'll speak of him that way again in chapter 16. And he's speaking of Satan, the lying, murderous ruler of this world under the sovereign, unchanging rule of God Almighty. And Jesus knows what is coming upon him at the cross. He knows he's about to suffer in obedience to his father. But he also knows that Satan has no claim on him. And what he means by that is he has no legal hold on him. He has no power or authority over him. And so he continues on and he says, I do as the Father has commanded me. Why? So the world will know that I love the Father. Do you see the connection of obedience with loving the Father? And then he says... Rise, let us go from here. You see, what's happening is that Jesus himself is exemplifying what it means to fear not and to fulfill his mission in this world. And for Jesus, in his next steps toward the completion of his mission, he moves closer and closer to accomplishing the salvation through his blood that will come to his people. So don't miss the fact that when he says, arise, let us go from here, he's moving closer to his own death. And he knows it. And he knows it. And this mission that he's about to accomplish is going to be that which will pour forth the blessings of the Holy Spirit that will enable all of his disciples, including you and me, to fulfill our mission in faith and in loving obedience to the triune God. And so, beloved, to trust the triune God and to lovingly obey Him means that we will suffer in this world. It's a road of suffering just as it was for our Lord Jesus. And the life we're called to in following Him is a cruciform life. It's a life in which every single day, We must take up our cross daily and determine to walk the road of suffering that he has for us within the peace that he promises to supply for us. You may know this story, but on September 11, 2001, Todd Beamer was a man who was a passenger on the hijacked United Airlines Flight 93 and on that flight, he tried to place a call through an airphone, but he was routed to customer service, and then he was passed on to a supervisor. And Beamer reported to that supervisor that one passenger had been killed and that a flight attendant had told him that both the pilot and the co-pilot had been forced from the cockpit and may have been injured. And he was also on the phone when the plane made a quick and a violent turn. And he then told the supervisor that some of the other passengers, along with him, were planning to attack the hijackers and to regain control of the aircraft after they had learned about what had also happened on that day at the World Trade Center and the Pentagon. Other people had made calls as well, and they understood a bit of what was going on. And then Beamer recited the Lord's Prayer in the 23rd Psalm. Apparently, he was a believer. He recited those with the supervisor, and then, according to her, Beamer's uh, last audible words were this, Are you ready? Okay, let's roll. And then you know what happened. Soon after the plane likely headed for a target in Washington, D.C., it crashed in a field in western Pennsylvania. It killed Beamer and everybody else on board. But most likely, those acts of heroism prevented a more deadly attack on a target in Washington, DC. You see, Todd Beamer, again, apparently a Christian, knew that his actions would lead to his death, and yet it didn't matter. There was a determination that said what? Let's roll. And so do you hear the determination even more in Jesus' voice as he says, Men, let's rise and go from here. Well, our time together here this morning is almost done. And again, the word from John 14 of God to you is, Christian, fear not and fulfill your mission in the world. Demonstrate your faith with loving obedience to the triune God and depend on the indwelling presence of the triune God and determine to walk the road of suffering in the peace of the triune God. And with all of this, I would just close by asking, what are the next steps of faith and obedience that God would have you take today? What are those next steps for you? Let me lead us in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you are all sufficient for everything that you have called us to. In the glorious riches of the fullness of who you are, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you help each of us to live in light of these truths in the very specific circumstances and situations that you've ordained for our lives. Help each of us to know what that next step of faith and obedience is. And Lord, may you be glorified in all of this. And may you use us to proclaim your glory and the hope of the gospel to people in the world who so desperately need it. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen and amen.